You're about to hear Fletcher Powell discuss language with Kathy Petrus and Ross Petrus. As you know, he's pretty good with language. What you might not know is that he's really good with movies as well. Watching them, critiquing them, watching them. Seriously, though, Fletcher is a member of the Critics' Choice Association, which means he's legit. And he offers a brief movie review every Thursday, available wherever you get your podcasts. You should listen and then decide what to watch. Nuclear. Now, is it Crick or Creek? Coyote or Coyote? Sometimes I say library. Welcome to You're Saying It Wrong. I'm Fletcher Powell, and each episode we turn to the people who literally wrote the book on this, sister and brother team Kathy and Ross Petrus, and we'll dive into what we get wrong and sometimes what we get right when we try to speak this weird English language. You know, lately we've been kind of cranky and we've been complaining a lot about uh, a few weeks ago, academies, the the words and language that people use in academic writing. Then we complained for a while about bureaucraties and and all of the bureaucracy words that the Department of Defense and the State Department and corporations use. We're going to lighten up maybe a little bit or at least talk about some words that Kathy and Ross like a little better. That may still sound kind of imposing and and big and a little ridiculous. First, though, we got an email from a listener that had a really interesting question about numbers. Yeah, let me read this, Fletcher. This is from uh, Emily, a former math teacher uh, in nearby Wichita. Oh. Or for nearby for some people. Very but... nearby. <laughs> Very it's nearby. Right next All to the around me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, that brings us to the question. Here's, here's what she says. I taught high school math in Wichita. Speaking of which, is it Wichita or Wichita? I always say Wichita, oddly enough. Ta, like but T- it's Wichita, like, isn't it? Like T-A-H rather than T-A-W. Wichita. Yeah. Why do we say Wichita? I guess it's a I New Jersey. Wichita. Right? See, that yeah, I that's your, yeah, that's I your, put a W on I think it's New Jersey, I think, actually. Which is a fine language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> speaking of that, cranky. speaking of that, really quickly, uh, can you? Why don't you pronounce the capital of the state I'm in, the capital of Kansas? <laughs> Look it up first. <laughs> Give us a hint. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, is it Louisville? No, it's not. No, that's, that's Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> oh, to, uh, and that's not the capital of Kentucky. Is it Topeka? Is it is it Topeka or Topeka? Topeka. Wait a second. Hold it. Hold it. That's the that is the capital. That is the capital. Topeka. What? Topeka. Okay. So here's the thing. It seems like everybody, I don't want to say everybody, but it seems like whenever I hear anybody from outside of the state say it, they say Topeka. Topeka. Here we pretty much say Topeka as if it's almost Topeka. like a T like apostrophe almost, P-E-K-A. Topeka. 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 Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I, Topeka, Topeka I hear, not Topeka. Yeah, it's always weird to me when I hear people people from outside the state say it because you often say to- Topeka, which just sounds Topeka. a little a little ridiculous to Do me. Do you realize now none of them sound right to me? Yeah, right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but like... we're really bad when it comes to Kansas because we're both saying Wichita and yeah. Topeka. So we're like, we're dead in Kansas. Yeah, what, what else have you got What else have you got city-wise that we can like ruin? Oh, all, all sorts of things, but, that, but you would probably pronounce them reasonably, whereas we don't pronounce them reasonably at all. For example, a, a city north of here called El Dorado rather than El Dorado 
and <gasps> really and uh, a city even a little farther north which which we call Salina rather than Salina however I have <laughs> Sa- Salina is in Saline County <laughs> oh no wow oh god I love English <laughs> oh Americans anyway let's reel it all the way back into to Emily's question about numbers <laughs> okay let's go back she taught high she te- she taught high school math in Wichita uh-huh. Notice the pronunciation. <laughs> Very nice. But now I'm a stay-at-home mom. The math teacher in me never left, so I've worked to install good numeracy skills in all three of my boys, one of the first of which is to count. My question is, what happened in the development of number language to make this beginner skill so difficult for our younger learners? One through ten comes relatively easily, but kids always derail at the random number 11 to 15 numbers. Once that threshold is cost, it's pretty much smooth sailing to infinity. Why do we count 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, instead of 10, 1 teen, 2 teen, 3 teen, 14, 5 teen? 14 is the only normal early teen number. English seems alone in this oddity. Now, Kathy answered this with the opening, good question, here it goes. <laughs> There's a little part of me that likes one teen and two teen, actually. Don't mm-hmm. you? There's something kind of euphonious about it. Am I right or am I right? Mm-hmm. I'm right. Anyway, let's start with 11 and 12, obviously, since the first two. And I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of these um, Old English words. 11 and 12 come from the Old English Okay, Ross, correct me. And Delofan? And Delofan? And Leofan, I thought. I thought it was Leofan, but I'm not, I'm, I'm very bad with Old English myself. So am I. I used to get critiqued for my Chaucerian pronunciation. Mm-hmm. And Twelf, which I like, T-W-E-L-F. And they go back to earlier, which one it was A-I-N, Ein-Lif, and Twa-Lif. Okay, what is Lif? Well, the it's sort of a guess, but we're pretty sure about it. It's a good guess. It comes from the root word to leave. So Einlef is one left after 10. And then it, be, it kind of merged into 11. Twilift is two left after 10. In other words, we're, this is where it gets really interesting. We're all used to a 10-based number system. So we have 10, which is fine. And then we have one left after 10, which becomes 11. Twa left after 10 becomes 12. I'm already, the problem I always have, I started thinking of base 10 when I was a kid, like panic. You know what I mean? I really don't. Well, like, base oh, 10 well. you didn't, base 2 you did. We are, I know, we are but base. I'm saying when it was at all the bases, that's when I started panicking. <laughs> it's just like I had that, like, oh, good God. No, 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 no. Okay, but then you'd think that we'd go then, wouldn't we, to 3 lift, 4 lift, uh, 5 lift, and 6 lift? Yes. But? But we don't. Why, Kathy? <laughs> <laughs> it's because um, at the very beginning of numbers, you didn't usually go above 10. You go back to base 10. So you didn't have to extend as much initially. Yeah, basically 11 and 12 were used more often in daily life. Beyond that, you didn't really need to, they think. But then going to 13, which is the next in the line, this one is actually nice and straightforward. It used to sound kind of like three teen, like threaten. Three again, it's old English. T h r e o t i e n e. 
Um, so it was sort of like three ten, three ten, three ten. Um, but with metathesis, which we all have discussed ad nauseum here, ad nauseum, ad nauseum. Ad nauseum. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I always say ad nauseum for some. I do too. Like, I see <laughs> yeah. This is the first time in my life I've ever heard ad nauseum. <laughs> I, it's, it's got more flair. I like to think. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it, it might be wrong. With it rhymes that with museum, so I think it does make some sense, actually. All right. <laughs> but anyway, with metathesis, it's easier to say thirteen than three ten. Three teen. Mm-hmm, so sure. you switch it. And then with 15, I'm just going to add one. I think I think we should probably move on after this. But with 15, why, you know, why is it not 5-teen? This is another, this is not metathesis. But in this case, pronunci- pronunciation changes also just occur. One linguist we, we read about was saying he thinks it's partly fun. And I agree with him. I think people like to change things. Mm-hmm. Language is always changing. And I think 5-teen, 15 sounds more fun or became, you know, just it just switched gradually over the years. So there's no real specific linguistic reason, perhaps, why it became, I mean, we can't say, well, rule 15 of English or whatever, or, you know, sound change had happened or whatever. It also could just be, it just changed. Although fifth, it was fifth. Wasn't five initially fifth? Pronounced Wait a minute. Fifth? Yeah. Oh my gosh. You're right, Catherine. Yes, I have old English. Yeah. I better I better restudy some old English here. It was fifth. Yes. Yeah. You're right. So actually this is a case where we're the fifteen is is legit didn't change. Mm-hmm. But I think fifteen is easier than fifteen, again with the sounds. Exactly. And five became the fifth in uh, in terms of just the word five became five in Middle English from Old English. You're right. But fifteen yeah. retained itself. 15, in effect, is 15 in Old English correctly. You're right. Emily, do you regret yet having written this? <laughs> but it's super interesting because, it, you know, it kind of goes back to a lot of what we often talk about. There's no one answer for each of these things. I Like, there's not one thing that applies to 11 through 15, right? There, there are a no. number of different influences and a number of different changes and and that's often what we're seeing with English, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's like we don't say we say forty, but we don't say five T. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, it's all very... you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say it. I say it ad nauseum. <laughs> hey, I'm not going to live that one down, am I? <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's let's move along here all right. before we. Fletcher, we're going to give you a word. We like this word. It's a fairly okay, rare word. Gonna, we I'm enjoy. I'm going to pass it over to you, Fletcher, in a second. Okay. <laughs> so we're moving on to to words that sound pretty hard, but that you're actually kind of fond of. Is that right? That are there are a couple here we've thrown in. We we like grab bag feel, so we've thrown in mostly words that we like, but a few words that we don't like. These are words that are usually found on lists all over the internet, like 50, 50 rare words you should know. Oh, right. And most of them we think you should know or are fun to know, but a couple we don't think you should bother with. We're certainly not bothering with them. It, we'll it wouldn't be them. us. Yeah, it wouldn't be us if we didn't complain a little bit about some words, right? Yes, yeah. we have to. <laughs> some of us more than others, but I won't name my name. <laughs> so, Kathy, you, you've sent me this one. I do know this one, as a matter of fact. I'll, I'll spell this. It's P-E-T-R-I-C-H-O-R. P-E-T-R-I-C-H-O-R. This is the smell of rain, basically. Uh, it's, yeah. pe- it's petrichor. Yeah. Very good, Fletcher. Yeah. It is. 
It was, and we, we felt, I didn't realize it's so recent. It was coined by Australian scientists in 1964, and it describes the unique earthy smell associated with rain. Yeah. And I love that word. Isn't it great? I, I was so happy when I learned that because, I mean, we all know it. We all know the smell. I mean, everybody, everybody knows, oh, it smells mm-hmm. like rain. And there's something kind of, just kind of nice about that smell of a, yeah. night, of a good rain. Absolutely. It's, I, I love both the word and the smell. I really do. And I'm like you, Ross. I was stunned that it's only from 64. I thought it was like one of mm-hmm. those, like, it came from, like, you know, ancient Greek words. But no. I mean, it does sort of. What, well, yeah. What, what do those parts mean? Why is that? the Why is petrichor the word? Well, petra, you know, comes from rock in ancient Greek. So Thus that, our you know, name, that, Petrus. Uh, oh. That's right. Thus our name right here. Very exactly. nice. And then... Uh, ichor or icor in this case is uh, like um, fluid. It basically is the fluid. I mean, in ancient Greek, it was the fluid of the gods. The, the gods didn't have blood. They had ichor or icor in them. Mm-hmm. So I always thought it was cool. But I really love this word. And also, for years, we lived in the desert. And there's something, re- when it rains in the desert, that first like couple of hours is just amazing with that smell coming up. See, now, I like it on asphalt. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an urban kind of guy. Right. And I, I, there's something about wet asphalt that I adore. Yeah. I just do. And that, that's how I know it. Of course, I've never lived in the desert. Uh, no. Us city folk know it from the asphalt and the, and the concrete. Mm-hmm. One thing I just want to throw in is that some scientists think, um, when we were looking up just the meaning of the words and everything, that um, the reason humans like that smell so much is because that um, way back in time, our, our, our forebears may have relied on rainy weather for survival. Mm. So the smell was like, yay, we're living a while longer, you know? That's what I sort of think with the desert feeling. I mean, because mm-hmm. it's like it brings you joy, you of know, that, fe- that rain. Which leads us. <laughs> <laughs> Which leads us exactly to another word. I think Fletcher's going to know this. Are we all pluviophiles? So I've never seen this word before, uh, pluviophile, P-L-U-V-I-O-P-H-I-L-E. But looking at the parts, I think even had we not talked about petrichor, I think I might have been able to figure this out. Is this somebody who loves rain? Yes. Okay. A pluviophile. Definitely. Yeah. But this was interesting because we couldn't find it in most dictionaries, which really surprised us. I would have thought that that would be almost everywhere. This is sort of like the neologism. I mean, it really is. I mean, it, it was first it came out in the 1990s. So it's it's kind of a, a construct, actually. I don't know who. Do we know? Did you ever find Rose? Because I did not where it was first used. It's been no, suggested for a lot of uh, what do you call it? Dictionaries, yeah. But it's not. No, it's not used. The one word that we did find and Fletcher, I'm sure you can gauge what this word is. And gauge is the key. What's a pluviometer? A pluviometer, a, a, a rain, a rain meter, right? Yeah, exactly. That word is in the dictionary. I just thought this word would be around, would have been around for years. I, I just, I felt like it, it feels like an old word to me. I mm. mean, obviously the Greek and the Latin are pretty old, but it just feels <laughs> like a word that would have been in the English language for years. I can picture, you know, I don't know, Sir Jones of, you know, Surrey talking about, I'm rather a pluviophile in, you know, 1710 or something. Oh, Ross, you should be Lantha Gentry. (laughs) (laughs) I need the land and I need the Gentry part. But other than that, you're almost there. You trust me. (laughs) 
All right, the next one I I I don't know if I've ever seen this before. I I mean I can guess on how to say it, but I'm not sure at all what it means. Uh, D e l i q u e s c e n t, like delic deliquescent, or is it just yes. delic? Okay, deliquescent. But what I have no idea what this means. This one, okay, again, as Ross had said at the top of the whole thing, we chose these words based on like a myriad of lists that were saying these are the most beautiful words in the English language, or these are words you should know. Bloody bloody blah. We kind of thought this one was bogus, that it was too technical. Um, that it was really the stuff of science articles. But then we found out that this pops up a lot, particularly in the New Yorker. It means Actually, Kath, don't 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 say it. Don't say it. Let's, <laughs> don't let's listen to me. <laughs> okay. Read Kathy, why don't you let's read a few of these. Let's see if you can get it after a while. Okay, this is one of our we we we've got to admit we have a bias here. Ross and I love using the New Yorker or comments by New Yorker readers in the New Yorker. Of course. Uh for complicated words because right. if we say this word is never used guarantee it's in the new york a lot <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and i think they, they pride again, themselves on that yeah <laughs> yes i think so so here we go i'm going to read you a couple of examples <clears throat> it was in a state of considerable disrepair with sagging roofs and deliquescent brickwork next it was an invisibly lifting the tides of a deliquescent life Next, they were assailed by the stink of organic decay. Oof. Deliquescent fruit mush. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> In her current show, Phantom Tale, supernatural creatures, a deliquescent sphinx. Okay, children were more mobile than adults, more deliquescent of shape, it was true. And finally, the rest of the poem is a deliquescent series of landscapes and waterscapes. Okay, and before Fletcher guesses, I want to say those are wonderful examples of deliquescent, but they <laughs> represent probably like 1% of the use of deliquescent. <laughs> deliquescent, we found all over the net talking about um, doctors, hygroscopic water, uh etc it's very common in science oh. not as common in interesting uh, outside of the new yorker so now can you guess <laughs> <laughs> uh, i mean i can guess the first three examples made me feel like it was sort of um broken down uh something along those lines um like the the deliquescent sphinx or the deliquescent bricks, or even the person's deliquescent life, it, kind of beaten beaten down, um, you know, uh, by weather, uh, weathered, whatever. Um, but the, okay, look at the word again. Deliquescent. Well, your last two examples made made me feel like that that wasn't quite right. So no, I I mean I still can't quite get there. Deliquescent. <laughs> Deliquescent. So, so it's got something to do with water, liquid. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, How thanks. did you figure that thanks, out? Thanks, Kathy. You know, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. That's I always have been. Uh, yeah, okay, but uh, that I still don't know. I mean, uh, worn down by water. So I mean, I, I still don't completely understand. Well, it actually, really, I mean, to be really technical, it comes from the Latin deliquesco. Uh, de, the verb infinitive is deliquescere, and it means to melt or to dissolve in Latin. Okay. Hmm. Okay. So now we have the Latin. Now let's kind of step forward and go into the English. 
In English, it literally means, or technically means, becoming liquid or having a tendency to become liquid. Now, what's happening, it seems to us in The New Yorker, is The New Yorker is taking a further step. And I think Fletcher does have a point. Deliquescent brickwork. Do you remember that first example? Sagging roofs and deliquescent brickwork. Right. I don't think the author meant the brickwork is liquefying. Do you, Kathy, or not? Well, yeah, well, I mean, obviously it's like, it's it's being like fancy and they're making it like brickwork yes. that's like like eroding and looks like, you know, like exactly. smoothed and whatever. But the, so. the scientific word, so therefore we have an interesting case here, scientific word like chemistry, that uh, deliquesces is liquefying spontaneously. But in this case, we don't have spontaneously liquefying brickwork or if we do, I think it's pretty terrifying. Something's really happening bad here. So we have the word now coming to mean in places like the New Yorker, sort of what Fletcher said, collapsing or sagging or getting. I got to say, apart. though, I personally like deliquescent fruit mush, and I think that mm -hmm. we should start a band. <laughs> I, I mean, it's true. They're, they're extending the meaning. And, and, I, and it's, I think it's actually a lovely word. And I, this is a case where I don't take exception. New Yorker, I think that you're fine with this usage. Because it is. Mm -hmm. It's very evocative, and I kind of like it. And I think it's just yeah. dandy. Now we're going to move to a word that both of us don't particularly like, and we learned something about this word. I like this word. <laughs> oh, you like it, I don't. Right, okay, we'll talk about it. <laughs> I was it. the one who put the word in, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I don't like it. Ooh, we're going to have a fight. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about mangroves, shall we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good callback. This uh, this is uh, a word I've never seen. Um, uh, P a r a para p r o s pros and d o k i a n dokian. I'm gonna. I mean para pros dokian. This sounds like uh, one of those Gulliver's Travels type words, like Lilliputian <laughs> or is it Brobdingnagian? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Very good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, I don't. A uh, para pros dokian. I have no idea what this is. It's kind of a, a it's kind of a made up word. It's kind of not. It's it's a sort of jokey word, and it's it's a it's a figure of speech word, and and that's where I agree with you with the Gulliver's Travel. It's a figure of speech when the end of the sentence surprises you or makes you reinterpret the first part, and it's usually very funny. It's usually a jokey sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, it comes from ancient Greek, uh, para meaning against, and prosdokia meaning expectation, against expectation, the ending. And Kathy's point is well taken. It is uh, it's actually sort of a modern word based upon, you know, two ancient Greek words mushed together into something. But it, I, interestingly enough, when I heard, first heard it, I thought it was actually a real ancient Greek word because the ancient Greeks and the, and the Romans were really big on rhetoric. And they have a long, long list of rhetorical terms use, you know, contrary to expectation. If you've ever studied Latin or Greek, you're going to be just regaled with these specific, frankly, rather dull terms that go on and on with uh, this is how you're supposed to speak. When you make a speech, the opening speech is called this. The middle part of the speech is called that. Cicero is always like, or Cicero correctly, is always <laughs> babbling with these. So I don't particularly like, I mean, I, I'll just throw you a couple of these out just to get really dull here. We have... Um, Anadiplosis, anacoulthon. We, I mean, we know alliteration, anaphora, as, uh, anastrophe, antithesis. We know aporia. We don't know. 
all of these are all of these are rhetorical terms used by the Greeks and the Romans, basically when they were making speeches and how to make a great speech. So I thought this was one of them. I just don't like using words like this, particularly in regular speech. But you don't use it in regular speech, but you use it to explain something. I mean, I, that's why I like it. I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm going to run around saying Parapistokian all the time. But I mean, I, I, can I do some examples? I mean, Groucho going, I've had a perfectly wonderful evening, but this wasn't it. Which is how I'm <laughs> oh, feeling <yeah>. right now. <laughs> oh, I, I really like that. Yeah. No, I like, I, mean, the, I like the usage. I like the usages a lot. I mean, I always uh-huh. love them. You know, I, you know, the Rodney Dangerfield, when I was a kid, my parents moved a lot, but I always found them, you know, I mean, those are good, <laughs> but I, I, the term I think is not, I guess though, in a way I can sort of see your point because it's fun. It's contrary to expectation. It's a yeah. joke contrary to expectation. So I guess, it, or a, a speech contrary I to expectation. I think it works. I think it works fine. You don't have to use it. You can just know of it. I think it's a lovely thing to know. I well, do. let's move on to a word that we both agree. <laughs> oh, this is okay. This everywhere. one we hate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this one is not lovely. No. I, yeah, this one is not lovely. I, I have to look really closely at this one and try to say this really slowly. Now, I don't know what you guys are doing or where this came from. No one in the world is using this word. Uh, I don't care what you say. Let's see. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to spell it because you'll just hear me say a bunch of letters in a row. Let's see if I can figure this out just piece by piece. Phloxenosinolepilification. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm not going to try saying it either. <laughs> but Well, this one we included because it, it showed up on so many lists of Believe it or not, the most beautiful, complicated words in English. Neither Ross nor I agree with its on, on the beauty angle at all. And we think it's a dumb word, frankly. I do. What do you think, Ross? Dumb? Oh, completely. Yeah, this is not. And I think it's done for. It's done. They always do these, like you know, longest word of the English language, and they have some huge chemical word. And this is basically a 1700s, 18th century coinage, four Latin prefixes meaning basically nothing. It's a small price for nothing, etc. And we found uh, it was in an Eaton Latin grammar. I think it was basically done to show like, you know, ha ha ha. It was supposed to be funny. But in fairness now, I mean, the one thing I've got to say is I think it's dumb how people are looking at it now. Mm-hmm. I think that it's Genesis was clever. I do. Because I think they were being like, they were making it sort of smarty pantsy, like witty, saying it was stupid. I think. Yes, Don't they were. Really? You're I right. Think, yeah. Okay. They were being so they, smart yeah. and clever. They were being like my fair lady guys. Yeah, they like made Henry up. Yes. they made up the word, and and it means it, now you uh, all of these are are um, prefixes meaning nothing. Basically, basically, yeah. yeah flux, flux. Yeah. Uh, um, what do we what do we have? We have flux, floxa, f l o c c i, and yes, nossa, n a u c i. I'm not now sure. See, now see, now yeah, see. Now see. Let me just see. Yeah, or Nauki in, in Latin. Okay. But, and yeah. then Neoli or Nihili. Yeah, yeah, nihilism. And Pilla. Nihilism, Pilla. nothing. And then Pilla, is it Pilla? P-I-L-I? Yeah. Floxen Nauki Neolipilification. Yeah, it's just a, yeah. It's a fun word. Yeah, it is a fun word. I mean, no one, you know, it. it's silly to, to put it in, in any list other than the list of fun words that exist, but... Yeah. yeah, like floxies, floxi, or floxis or floccus in, in Latin would be dregs or something. Like okay, mm-hmm. all right. Dregs. Yeah, this stuff reminds me, though, it's sort of jocular. You're sitting around with your brandy oh, and cigars. Sure. Yeah. And go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? 
The next word was really interesting because we know this word. I thought everyone knows this word. I'm not going to even buy I don't think we should even send it to Fletcher. No, I already did. She did. <laughs> but I mean, this word is everywhere. Yeah, loquacious. Yeah. But you know what it means, right? Uh, talkative? Yeah. yeah. We were surprised in this case that this would be on words that you don't know, but you should know because we pretty much presumed most people knew the word. So. I, I don't. What do you think about that, Fletcher? Yeah, I mean, it was I mean, common use. let's say most people who would be reading a list of words you should know would probably know it. I don't know about most people, like just generally. I don't know that that most people know the word loquacious, but I don't think it's uh, an obscure word by any means. That's that's really what we're saying. Yeah. We're saying it's not a rare word. We don't yeah. think, and it's usually easy to basically figure it out by context. So, like, I would say all three of us are quite loqua loquacious, and I think it's obvious that we are. So, you <laughs> well, know. well, in this context, at least, you guys, you, what, what, <laughs> yeah. what you guys don't know is that I'm actually quite shy. <laughs> <laughs> so am I, Fletcher. Yeah. So am I, never talk. <laughs> I think, though, the reason this ends up on a lot of, a lot of lists of beautiful words is because of the cue. You that that sound because we had talked yes. about this in the past mm. in, a, in a prior podcast. We we're talking about sounds people like. We we're talking about sibilants mm -hmm. and, and and all that, and people seem to respond well to the a, a q u the, that that sound the quay the qua the qua I should say I guess especially in the middle of the words you've got loquacious mm -hmm. which I'm speaking about quite loquaciously, but that's beside the point. So I think that's really a biggie. I agree. And in propiquinity, pro I kind of can't say it suddenly. <laughs> Go on. Oh, oh, well, now I'm... No, wait. <laughs> no, I was going to say in propinquity to the previous word, we have propinquity. And I was <laughs> yeah. spelling it out just now. And do you know this word, Fletcher? Propinquity. P-R-O-P-I-N-Q-U-I-T-Y. I, I yes. Don't, I, I don't think I really do. I've seen it, but I don't really think I know what it means i i would have i would have thought that it was along the lines of propensity even though part no. of that is because of how it <laughs> i mean part of that is because it kind of sounds like that right but no you'll have to explain to me what is propinquity this is one of my favorite words in the world i i use this word as much as possible and i i think i only really learned it in my 40s or something which might be why i've like latched onto it it really technically means uh, closeness, uh, um, proximity. Oh, yeah. Really. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that. That's familiar to me now. So it's like something that's near. And you use it like I use it a lot when you talk about you become friends with someone, say at work. And it's because of the propinquity. You're not really buddies. Yeah. You would never have been friends in the real world. But because you're at work and you're together, the propinquity makes you friends yeah right um we often we use the word proximity now uh i mean that not not to mean the same thing but w when we're talking about like exactly what you're talking about there kathy like uh you know i i have a i have a very good friend who i've been friends with since we were about three years old and that's because we grew, grew up in close proximity to each other um mm -hmm. so this is the same you know the same thing we we grew up in propinquity i guess to each other mm -hmm. to me though that propinquity and this is you and I were talking about it when we made the list. Propinquity to me is slightly different than proximity. Because, and I know technically it means like physical nearness, like you're close. But to me, it means that it, it's sort of like, like when I said the thing about a friend's, I would say someone was my friend by propinquity, but they wouldn't have been my friend were it not for that. 
Whereas proximity to me implies something slightly different. I don't, that was interesting because we talked about this and I don't agree. I don't hear that difference. I'm not yeah. saying it's wrong. I'm just saying, you know, that shows how words have different meanings for different people in different ways. Yeah. Because I don't hear that. Uh, I don't sense that difference at all. That's interesting because I do. I mean, when I say I'm friends yeah. with Propinquity, I mean that were it not for that, I would never have been probably friends with them. Like I didn't choose. I, I don't know how to explain no, it. No, I see what you're saying. It's very, yeah. Okay. I just don't see it. I was going to say, one thing was sort of interesting about it was the word was popularized by a U.S. diplomat, George Ball, in the 1960s, apparently. Hmm. And I love this Ian Fleming quote from Diamonds Are Forever. Nothing pro-pinks like propinquity. <laughs> that. Oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. Do you want me to sing Diamonds Are Forever now in Would honor you? of that? <laughs> Thank you, but no. <laughs> okay. The next one is a good one. Ooh, this one looks like something I need to be very careful with. This one I had no idea. I didn't know what this was until a few years ago. And the only reason I learned it a few years ago was because of uh, there was that book that had that title. Oh. And I looked it up. Really? A book had the title? The Quincux, yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, so the word Q-U-I-N-C-U-N-X. I mean, is it pronounced the way it looks? Quincunx? Yes. Okay. Yes. Isn't it a cool looking word? So what is this? What is a quincunx? I mean, it sounds like a mythological creature, right? No, this is a weird word. First of all, I was going to add, there was a book, The Quincunx. It came out in uh, 1989. And that's when I first learned the word. Will you say the word again, Ross? Quincunx. Okay. I, could, I couldn't really hear the second N very well. It sounded like maybe you were oh. saying quincunx. And, and so... No, quincunx. Okay. okay. But I just elided, I guess. It's basically a geometric pattern of five points arranged in a cross. Four of them form a square rectangle and there's a fifth at the center. You got to look at it. Actually, it doesn't sound like, but it sounds more complicated. When you picture it, it's not really that complicated. Mm. No. At all. You know what I mean? But it sounds like, ooh, what? Huh? You know? Yeah, but I had no idea about this word oh, until, I see, I, until I that see. book came out. Um, so like you see it now. Like uh, 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 the example I see here is like a five on a a die. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is actually a better way of putting it. Is that it's like that's a fancy. much better way. Of saying it. <laughs> see, now I learned it, Ross, because of Lawrence Durrell, because I read the Avignon Quintet, and he called it a quincunx. So that's how I knew it, which was all that Gnosticism and stuff. So, you know. He was like a little smarty pants. But the what I didn't know though, actually, on that was that this is this gets this got me really confused. And I don't think anyone knows this except for an astronomer. The other definition is the aspect of two planets which are at an angular distance of five twelfths of a circle. Yeah, sure. One hundred and fifty degrees apart in a sky. You didn't I know. Have that? No idea what that means. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I knew that one. The 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 five on the die that was that was obscure to me. But <laughs> but you know, I, so I I this didn't make a lot of sense to me as you were describing it because I was trying I was having trouble with the the idea of the cross, but also um, four four dots basically making a rect or a square and then a dot in the middle. But then I I turn. Um, you know, a slightly sideways, and I can see the cross. It's like three dots, mm. three dots down, three dots across, and the one in the middle is yeah. the overlapping. I gotta dot. say, that's a case where I think that's a terrible definition. I think it's really, <laughs> it, really, truly. I don't think it comes across. It's just like yeah. you go, like, okay, you know, the five <laughs> sign, you know, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but I didn't realize. Okay, quincunx technically means in classical language five twelfths. 
Yes. Oh, okay. Which goes to the astronomy definition. Right. Okay. That's five twelfths right. of a circle. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, do you ever think of something being five twelfths? I don't. I don't think that ever occurs to me. I'm going to interrupt here. There was a Vanity Fair article in 2001 saying the bad news is that the Mars Saturn quincunx with equally powerful effort is doing everything possible to wrench that bottle away from you. Probably was a New Yorker writer who was moonlighting at the uh, Vanity Fair. (laughs) I have no idea what that context was, but I guess it was astrological or something. I don't know. Okay, let's move up to this one, Ross, because I like that word. Okay, we're doing this last one here? Yes. The one that starts with a C. All right. Uh, C-A-L-L-I-P-Y-G-I-A-N. I'm going to guess Calipigian. Very, Very nice. good. Calipigian. Um, but I don't know what what it, what anything Okay, Fletcher, I'm going to read to you a quote from The New Yorker. Because... <laughs> And we're going to see now if you can guess the word, okay? All right. The famously Calipigian television personality, Kim Kardashian, makes frequent requests for free <laughs> Spanx. Spanx spelled S-P-A-N-X, the brand name, yes. incidentally. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So, again, something I have to be very careful with. But because Spanx are mentioned in the sentence, I'm going to go ahead and go with this meaning something like large-bottomed. Very close. Okay. <laughs> the technical definition is having shapely buttocks. And this is the only, I want to point out, this is the only word in the English language that is non-slang that means this. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that something? Yeah. It began, we, we've got it going back to the 1870s in the OED, so it's not a new word. Well, it doesn't sound like a new word, does it, Calipigian? Well, actually, it's it's a very old word because it comes from the ancient Greek. Because Kali means uh, good or great or very good, and pilos means buttocks. And it's literally an ancient Greek word. <laughs> wow, there you go. It's a Hellenistic Greek. having it, And it was used for um, Aphrodite, actually. Huh, you don't have to stretch it all so, though, to find the meaning in that one. <laughs> means, no, means a good rear end. I don't think it's one that you use often, though, in like a regular conversation. <laughs> I hope not. I mean, maybe you do. Well, not my business. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. You're Saying It Wrong is part of the NPR Podcast Network and is produced by me, Fletcher Powell, in the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. Kathy Petrus records from her home in Granada, Spain. Ross Petrus records from his home in Toronto, Ontario in Canada. Our digital team is Beth Golay, Jordan Curtley, and Carly Cooper. If you like what we're doing here on the show, please tell everyone you know and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast platform of choice. If you have a question for Kathy and Ross, you can email me at powell at kmuw.org or email them at kandrpetrus at gmail.com. The book, You're Saying It Wrong, was published by 10 Speed Press, and you can find that and Kathy and Ross's other books pretty much anywhere you get books. We recommend your local independent bookstore. And a number of their books are also available on audiobook, read by the authors themselves. Kathy and Ross are always up to something. You can find out more about what they're doing at their website, kandrpetras.com. That's K-A-N-D-R-P-E-T-R-A-S.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks.
it started as a normal day. What if the truth about the greatest tragedy of your life was kept secret from you? A huge explosion occurred. This is the story of a scandal deliberately buried in the chaos of the Iraq war. What, what really just happened? Listen to NPR's Embedded podcast in its latest series, Taking Cover.